Hello, welcome. This is Corkscrew Convos, another theme park podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is DJ. And we're here to talk about roller coasters, theme parks, funnel cakes, and everything else under the sun in its time. But first, DJ, would you please give us our disclaimer? The views, opinions, and information expressed during the following presentation are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent organizations affiliated with those individuals. That's exactly right. Thank you very much. DJ, it is our 11th episode. We just had our 10th one. It was a big deal. It was an extravaganza. And now we're to 11. That's right. I wish we could say decade of episodes. Unfortunately, that's not how that's measured. So we're at episode number 11. Yeah, there, there are some podcasts out there that have been running for, I guess, 15 years now. I think podcasts <laughs> started around 2004, and uh, I know Coaster Radio started in 2005. In the Loop is pretty close to that as well. Uh, so some of them have been doing it for more than a decade, but uh, we're not quite there yet. Yeah, and here we are, uh, two months into it even? Yeah. Three months, maybe. Well, yeah, around there, yeah. We, I think we had our first recording on October 1st, and now we're in mid-December, so we've, we've been around for a little bit. 45 days. Gotta love it. 45 days. Wow. No, no, 65. <laughs> 65? No, 75. <laughs> I don't know. I don't 30 do all and that 30. mental math, DJ. That mental math is not for me. <laughs> so, But I like, like we sort of said last week, I was excited to see what we've been able to do in 10 episodes, uh, but I'm ready for the next 10. Ready for us to have a guest. I think we have a few things cooking that we're pretty interested in. And uh, it's, it's going to be good. So, dear listener, I do encourage you to buckle up and get ready because it's going to be a great time. Absolutely. And if you haven't already, leave us a review. Uh, maybe we will uh, read it on air. Uh, who knows what will happen. But remember to do that as well. Uh, we are 10 episodes in. We have a fair number of reviews. But why don't we up that as well as our episode count increases. Hopefully our ratings and our reviews increase as well. Uh, DJ's always shilling for review. It's review this, review that, <laughs> give us stuff. I don't know. Well, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but yes, if, if you were able to write a review for us on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. It does help us grow the show. Uh, we briefly talked about it at the end of last episode, where if a review is left with a, a one of those five-star reviews, we'll read it on the show. You get a shout-out. It's a simple transaction. So, DJ, let's read a few of these to give people an example of what they could get if they do leave a review. Our first review comes to us by way of Bruffsman. So, shout out to Bruffsman. Hey, Bruffsman. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty interesting username. We like it. Bruffsman said, great. Five stars. I've been a follower since the first episode. The growth from the first episode has been fantastic. The topics are really flowing now, and the pacing of the cast seems very fluid. I'm excited to see what this grows into. Bruffsman, one question for you. Were you saying that we sucked at the beginning? Mm. Definitely could have been saying that. So that was a sort of a, a backhanded review. I mean, it was still five <laughs> stars, so the ends justify the means. Yes. Um, yeah. And I did say last episode, you can write what you want within reason as long as it's a five-star review because that's what gets the ratings algorithms flowing. And we can't win them all, but it looks like we're winning now. 
Yeah, so why don't you give us another review, uh, DJ, and see what we got going. I'm going to go with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is from The Christian Lawrence. The Christian Lawrence. Shout out to The Christian Lawrence. I wonder who wrote it. (laughs) Uh, Lawrence Christian, perhaps. Uh, Subject line, love listening to these lonely loopers. Mm, Interesting. He not only... Yep, <laughs> it sounds like it. As someone who doesn't follow the goings-on of the theme park industry, hey. huh, I enjoy these enthusiast takes on what's new and upcoming. Great chemistry between the hosts, too. I look forward to their companion spinoff podcast, Cookout Combos, where they discuss mm-hmm. what's new and hot in the world of barbecue. Well, first thing I take away is that they used one of our phrases, goings-on. I know we didn't coin that term but it's not necessarily regular parlance by any means i thought you were gonna say they used the term lonely loopers <laughs> well yeah that's another phrase that they use so i'm i'm a fan of the christian lawrence i like it thank you the christian lawrence and thank you for adding five stars to our eight rating count we appreciate yeah. that so let's do one more for this episode and then we'll pick it up later how about that that works for me This one comes to us from Morgan Gurnan. Hello, Morgan Gurnan. So, they said, oh my gosh, they're going to make me blush. They said, the best (laughs) theme park podcast. I don't know if we're there yet, but I do appreciate the praise. I feed off of it. Uh, It was a (laughs) five-star review. They said, the hosts are keeping things lighthearted and fun while still giving great insight into the industry. Oh, that was very kind of you, Morgan Gurnan. Well, thank you very much. Those were a few of the reviews that we have on Apple Podcasts, and it's a fun way to get a shout-out on the show and get your name read aloud to about 12 people. Yes, I feel like Carlotta, the prima donna in Phantom of the Opera. Just keep giving us compliments. I'll keep taking it, and I'll just keep singing. (laughs) You know, DJ, it's funny that you mentioned Phantom of the Opera today, of all days, for me. Uh, Why is this that? isn't in the outline. <laughs> this is just... Today is sort of... I Like, there are some points in your life that you just remember. I remember the first day that I saw Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. It was April 18th, 2014. <laughs> and I remember the first day that I watched The Phantom of the Opera. This was the... Uh, recording of the 25th anniversary concert from 2011 with an incredible cast. And the first day that I watched it was December 14th, 2014. (sighs) Oh, yeah. On this day in history, six (laughs) years ago, Chris watched Phantom of the Opera for the first time, and nothing has been the same ever since. It's still one of my favorite musicals out there. I love it so much. That's a great cast, too, that specific one. Oh, yes. Ramin Karam, Lucierra Bogus, Hadley Frazier. Whew. Quite a cast. Love it. But that's not why we're here, DJ. I feel like we get a little off track in the beginning, but then we course correct to get these trains back on the track so that we can do some cycles, warm up the trains. There we go. uh, And then get things really going, get people on the ride. And it's a good time. So, corkscrew convos cleared for dispatch. Let's dive in. (music) 
And let's start with our listener questions, a.k.a. the way to pick our brains and maybe get a deep dive into whatever you're wondering about. So, DJ, do we have any questions? We've got a few questions, and you're right. This is the best way to dive into whatever our listeners are wondering about, whatever questions they have for us. And our first question, which also comes with a shout-out, comes from Matthew. Hey, Matthew. Shout-out to Matthew. Hello. Matthew asks... Oh, okay. I haven't had dinner. I haven't eaten in, I think, seven hours at this point. So this is a great question. It's going to really get my mouth watering. The question from (laughs) Matthew, Chris, best Mm -hmm. meal you've had in a theme park? Best meal you've ever had in a theme park? Well, DJ, here's the thing. I've already had dinner, so I'm I'm okay to to draw out the recording of this podcast yes. as long as necessary. <laughs> but I like that you're staying hungry, both be, literally and figuratively. I love that. Yeah, with your answer, be sure to really go into detail about the different flavors and all the, the work that went into each piece of food that you had. I think I will. So my best meal... I had two that I was thinking about, but I ended up settling on one because it's a meal that I had had several times, and it's really just so delicious. So let me get into mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. At Disney California Adventure, in Anaheim, California, of all places, there is the Pacific Wharf Cafe. Uh, the Wharf being a neighborhood of Disney California Adventure from the beginning in 2001. Uh, But this particular restaurant is a sort of Panera Bread-style quick-service restaurant, um, and it's so good. They have fresh-baked sourdough bread, coincidentally my Mm. favorite kind of bread, uh, using uh, fresh-baked dough from uh, Boudin or Boudin. I do not know how to pronounce it, but it's the authentic San Francisco brand of sourdough bread. Uh, You go to San Francisco, and you're walking along, you see... Uh, the huge bread factory that's Boudin. I'm just going to say Boudin from here on out and hope that's correct. But they have that same dough mix in a factory in California Adventure at Disneyland. And so a lot of the items that they sell uh, come with a side of bread. There's also Mickey sourdough or in the Halloween season, Mickey vampire sourdough bread that you can get. Uh, But really, it's bread and bread is good. (laughs) So it's great. And the particular meal that I loved when I went to this Pacific Wharf Cafe was Chinese chicken salad in a sourdough bread bowl. Ooh. And this is Chinese chicken with uh, ginger and soy dressing, uh, crunchy bits, everything on salad in a sourdough bread bowl. And it was so good. It wasn't incredibly expensive, especially as far as theme park food goes. It wasn't breaking the bank. And it was, was it a under fifteen dollars. Uh, yeah, I think back when the Pacific Wharf Cafe was still open, it was maybe around twelve or thirteen dollars. Um, fifteen so. is usually my litmus at a theme park. You know, anything mm-hmm. uh, you, you're not going to get much under fifteen, and when you do, and like you said, when it's good, that's yeah. really something to really talk about and be excited about. Yeah, that's why I am holding up this meal <laughs> as. The best meal. Now, I might have had fancy foods like I've eaten at the Blue Bayou at Disneyland. And oh, wow. there's barbecue at Bush Gardens Williamsburg that mm-hmm. is really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could get, um, I would always love to get the Smokehouse Sampler there, which is much mm-hmm. more expensive. That's definitely over that $15 amount, sure. but it is barbecue. 
I think that Smokehouse Sampler, you got two strips of lean brisket, a chicken thigh and drumstick, smoked, of course. Okay. Uh, waffle fries. Whew. The best kind of fry, by the way. Waffle fries. Um, <laughs> I agree And Oh, yeah, and pulled pork as well, I'm pretty sure. So it was, it was really good, and I'll give that as my honorable mention here, is the Smokehouse Sampler at Bush Gardens Williamsburg at Trapper's Smokehouse. Uh, they also have some pretty good fried pickle spears with a, a tangy uh, dipping sauce. Mm. Mm-hmm. DJ, are you hungry yet? I am hungry, and even your mention of pickles made me hungry, and I don't really like pickles, <laughs> and that's how I know I'm hungry. Yeah, well, let me close up my answer, and then I'll have you talk about food, even though you haven't eaten in seven hours. <laughs> I, I'm just curious to see what'll happen. But like I said, the Pacific Wharf Cafe... The Chinese chicken on salad in a sourdough bread bowl. It was a light but filling option, and it gave you so much bread. And DJ, I've already said this, I am a fan of bread. Yes. And it, like it gave you a loaf of bread hollowed out with salad in it and chicken. And it was, mm. oh, it was really good. But DJ, go ahead. That does sound great. What is your favorite, what is your best meal that you've ever had at a theme park? So I'm going to go a little bit different on this question. And probably, Matthew, I'm sorry that I'm answering this maybe not how you intended. Um, But I'm going to go a little bit broader. I'm not going to pick one location in the sense of one physical location. I'm going to go with an event on this because there's really, in my opinion, um, nothing that really stacks up to it. And I would say my best meal I've ever had in a theme park was 2018 Epcot's food and wine festival and i've pulled up a menu from that specific festival and i'm looking through and i'm identifying some things that i had and what made it great and i'm just going to tell you really quickly some of the different booths i visited and the items that i had at those booths again not one location necessarily but it is at one theme park and with the way that those items work you can craft a meal out of it eat all day and so um, I think that's a great value and a great variety as well. You're not stuck to one thing. So here we go. Some different items in the booths that I visited. Start with Africa. I had this incredible, I'm probably saying this wrong, Burberry-style beef tenderloin tips with onions, ha- jalapenos, tomatoes. That was incredible. I do remember eating that. Uh, and it was also, that festival, I believe, takes place in, I think it was November when I was there, so it was a bit cooler outside. So that helped, definitely. Uh, went over to another area, went over to Australia. Just going in order here, I remember having the grilled sweet and spicy bush berry shrimp with pineapple, pepper, onion, and snap peas. That was interesting as well. DJ, I'm pretty sure they call them prawns over there. Oh, yes, you're right. You would think, you would think Disney would know that, but oh well. Uh, another far-off country um, from ours, Canada. I remember having the Canadian cheddar cheese and bacon soup with the pretzel roll. That was great as well. Definitely recommend that. And then, of course, we stopped at China, had the chicken and dumplings. Chicken dumplings, I'm sorry, with Chinese slaw. I also love a good Asian dish, and Chinese slaw sounds very similar to the salad you were mentioning, Chris, with the different sweet and tangy vinegary flavors, the soy, the the fresh flavor. You're making me hungry again. Uh, went over to France, tried the creme brulee uh, with a house-made raspberry jam that came with it. I do remember that. I love creme brulee, and they did a very good job with theirs. Uh, Germany tried the roast bratwurst in a pretzel roll. 
always great. Didn't even really have to think about that when I knew that that was going to be incredible. Ah, uh, yes, and also, talking about dessert, jumping over to Italy, remember trying the cannoli. Just cannoli filled with sweet ricotta, chocolate, and candied fruit. Yes, real cannoli uses ricotta, ladies and gentlemen. I don't really like ricotta cheese. Well, it's it's bigger than that. It's not just ricotta. For me, I don't like when cheese pretends to be sweet. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like when cheese... What about cream like cheese? Cream che- well, I like cream cheese on a bagel, but when yeah. it's in the cake or yeah, so in good. a pastry or a dessert, no thank you. And ricotta <laughs> is just sort of goopy to me, so... Yeah. Okay. But... Proceed. Also jumped over to Japan, tried the spicy roll, tuna and salmon topped with volcano sauce. Don't remember what volcano sauce was, but I do know that I had that roll and enjoyed it. Jumped over to Mexico, tried their shrimp quesadilla, was very good. Corn tortilla with shrimp, Oaxaca cheese, and topped with spicy guajillo sauce and sesame seeds. And lastly, probably the most wild one to me, the one that I didn't actually enjoy as much. Everything was good. But we go to New Zealand, their lamb meatball with spicy tomato chutney. Um, Not really a fan of lamb, really, all that much. Thought maybe I'd try that and I would be a fan. Didn't really like it. I'm going to put that on me, though. I'm sure it was good. I just don't like lamb in general. Just gave it a chance. So that would be my answer to you, Matthew. The Food and Wine Festival, specifically 2018, the only time I've been um, to Epcot's Food and Wine Festival down in Orlando. Definitely check it out. Wow. And not too busy of a time either for that park, so a great time to check it out, too. Well, that was a very niche answer, but I love it. Uh, One quick thing to close it up. Uh, I don't know what chutney is, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. I've made it this long without (laughs) learning what it is. I just think that mystery is going to persist for me. I don't remember what it was. Maybe that's what I didn't like about the dish. It, it could have been the chutney rather than the lamb, but I had lamb I the was... other night. I tried it again for the first time in years and just, eh, not a fan. Well, I like lamb and Greek food, but I yes. don't know. When I hear chutney, I just think chopped celery for some reason, but I know mm. it's not that. I love chopped celery. Yeah, I mean, it's delicacy. So that was a great question, Matthew. Thanks again for that. The next one we have is from Sean. This hey, is Sean. another question. Well, first, shout out to Sean again. Another great question. Shout out for always giving questions. I think this is Sean's third question. Yeah, so you get one more. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Please keep the questions coming. We love it. Sean, this time, Sean asks, what do you think about small parks bouncing back faster than corporate parks? Mm. Well, DJ, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. I think it's a mixed bag personally. Because I think that, you know, parks that are a part of a larger company, they generally should have a larger financial safety net, and they're usually already in these larger markets. Smaller parks can be small for many reasons, and that could just be owner preferences, uh, the market size, uh, and then competition for entertainment dollars in the market. Uh, You look at a lot of the smaller parks, they're not generally near large cities. Um, And there are some exceptions to that rule, of course. Um... So it it could be difficult. Like you think for some smaller parks, they've been they've been doing their thing for decades a lot of times. The land is owned by them. It's not leased. Mm-hmm. And in some situations, there's not a ton of big expenses that are still on the balance sheet for them uh, that maybe are amortizing per year and, and their debt relief and things like that. A lot of these smaller parks have just been doing their thing for decades. And those parks, those smaller parks... 
I think they may be well positioned to take what they can get next year and be more flexible to be what they need to be to be successful in the next five years. I like that answer. I think that's really thought out. Well, what do you think? Um, I I think Sean might be onto something. I feel like small parks can bounce back faster. Um, I'm kind of using some of the criteria you gave, Chris. Um, I think being in a smaller market is actually more advantageous for them. If you were like, really? in a, yeah, if you're in a park, say like Atlanta or um, Los Angeles, you know, a big metro area, um, I think you're going to have more difficulties um, not only opening with perhaps some government restrictions, um, but also with just sentiment of people in general in a more urban area. You know, I think that's something to think about. And, and also I think there's less bureaucracy in those smaller parks. So um, they have less red flags. There's, there's less, maybe let's say lawyers um, that might be saying, oh, let's, let's not do this particular thing, or maybe you ought to reconsider this. Um, and I think at the same time, they also have more to lose it more to lose uh, by opening slower. And I think of things that have happened this year and thinking of parks that opened quickly and had full operation. Um, you know, Indiana Beach was one that came to mind, Silverwood as well. Uh, and even a smaller park like Knoebels has tried everything they can to be open and they were open fairly quickly. And now they've converted to a light display to keep the park open and be open at a, a time that might be a little bit different than normal uh, for Knoebels. Um, and so uh, seeing how parks have been flexible, I think the smaller team you have, uh, you can move a bit quicker. You don't have to answer up to somebody, I think, is something else to consider. The head honcho of everything, of the entire operation, may be located at your park. You don't have to convince somebody to open, if that makes sense. So um, hmm. I, I think they do have a chance to bounce back faster. Um, I think the question lacks who will be more successful, and that I don't know. Well, I think it's sort of like and forgive the metaphor, but it's sort of like riding the waves. A small park is going to be a smaller ship, a yacht, a schooner. I don't know the other boat terms, but <laughs> it's going to be a boat that goes up and down over the waves, and maybe the waves crash over the side some, but it's riding through the storm. And we compare that to a huge container ship that is the corporate parks. They're just going to plow through the waves and it might be a, a rocky ride for a little bit, but mm -hmm. they're just going to plow through uh, whatever conditions that they're in. I'm going to say both will probably eventually get to where they need to be, if I'm going to continue this metaphor, uh, but it's by different means. I think at the same time, too, these bigger chains, and I don't want to, you know, say ill or, or put any negativity in the room, um, but you also we gave the disclaimer. You can say what you want. <laughs> but you also wonder if perhaps these bigger parks, I mean, or these bigger chains, are in a position to just sell some of what they have and move on. Uh, whereas well, these smaller what do they parks, sell? perhaps a park that isn't performing well, or perhaps they might repurpose land that they own for something else. Maybe there is land for expansion they decide to put on the market. Um, who knows? Um, I just think they have more resources to where they could. They could sell something or repurpose something and get out without losing much. Whereas a small park, as you've kind of touched on, it's it's just a small park. That's all they really have. And so I think there's less flexibility in 
being able to say, oh, well, this is behind us. Let's let's move on. I don't think a small park can do that. I think this you're going to see small parks working harder than the large parks, perhaps, as they build up to some sort of normalcy years down the road from now. Yeah. Flexibility is going to be the name of the game. Absolutely. Hey, and now I have my cliche for the episode in. <laughs> okay. So I think that was a great question, Sean. Thanks again for that. Thanks, Sean. Last question that we have comes to us from Maggie. Shout out to Maggie. Hello, Maggie. Maggie asks for a brief history of launch coasters, and they said it's okay if it's too broad. First, let me say, no, that's a great question, Maggie. It's a big question, mm -hmm. but it's a good one. So I'm going to say this, DJ. Let's fold that question in to our next segment on the show, um, and that's our discussion of what's going on. So, DJ, what's going on? Some interesting news we have uh, this 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 day in December, as you said, mid-December. Some different things happening. Uh, one thing to talk about is something that I was very excited to hear about once they announced that this was coming to the United States. It's the only ride in North America, I believe, even the Western Hemisphere that's like this. Uh, that is the Aquaman Power Wave coming to Six Flags over Texas. Have you seen this ride? I have seen the video of the original Mach Power Splash at Wallaby, Belgium, I believe. Yeah, Pulsar. Pulsar. That's uh -huh. the name of my toothbrush as well. <laughs> That's why I bought the toothbrush, because it was the Pulsar, the Pulsar model. And I said, I can't not buy it. <laughs> so, yeah. I think this is a ride that speaks to the true innovation of Mach rides. I think with, with Mach, you, you, know, you know, I feel like there's a lot of uh, just... Negativity, again, maybe some ill talk in the coaster community about mock rides. Um, this is a ride company based in Germany. Um, they have uh, sort of smooth rides. Their rides aren't necessarily as intensive rides that you would find in other manufacturers like Intamin or Rocky Mountain Construction. But some of the rides uh, popular in North America, you have Manta at SeaWorld San Diego. Uh, you have Sierra Sidewinder at Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, probably their most famous in North America would be Time Traveler at Silver Dollar City. Uh, there's also a few other installations you'll find around the country, uh, and quite a few over in Germany as well, uh, and Europe in, in whole, and really the entire world. Lots of Chinese installations as well with mock rides. But they're known for producing solid, smooth rides um, that are re-rideable uh, and 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 aren't just necessarily one-trick ponies. But what this is, it might actually be a one-trick pony, but it's something that really excites me, uh, especially when I heard about it coming to North America and being closer to me in Texas. Uh, and essentially what this is, imagine sort of a half-pipe, okay? And in the middle of this half-pipe, you have a nice little bunny hill. And it's sprawled out. The ride's located on a, on a small man-made lake. And folks load into this boat. I believe it seats over 20 people or something like that. It's pretty high capacity for being one boat. Uh, but this ride uh, launches you, I believe, is it backwards to begin? It might be forwards to begin. I might have that wrong. Maybe it's backwards. You come over the bunny hill. You start to experience some, some speeding up. You go up one side of the half pipe. You go back down. Experience more speed as you launch a little bit faster over the bunny hill. And then you come back backwards for your last launch. That's right. 
You get a little bit faster and you ascend almost to the top of the back end of the half pipe. There are two just ends of track. And you see below you this area you've passed three times now fill with water a little bit. And on your third drop back, it's filled with just enough water that you hit this man-made lake. There's a splash. Great visual for the whole park. Soaking everybody that happens to be around the wave. I've seen with the with the installation you're talking about, Chris, with Pulsar, they constructed a little dock that really uh, allows people to watch the ride and get absolutely soaked, maybe more wet than the folks on the ride. Uh, but then the ride slows down and comes back into the station. Uh, interestingly, this ride coming to Six Flags over Texas, over in Dallas and Arlington, uh, it doesn't have what the ride uh, over in Wallaby has, and that's this rotating... Uh, sort of platform that allows for fast loading and having two train operations. It looks like this is just one car, and I find that interesting for a park in metropolitan Dallas, especially when it's going to get hot out there. Uh, more flash pass sales. Uh, that's true, too. I didn't even think about that. It's all about driving guest spending. <laughs> but the, the, the news about this ride, we knew it was coming. It's delayed to 2022. This ride yes. was supposed to open this year. Of course, that didn't happen. Um, yeah. But why? Why is it delayed a whole nother year? Well, that's a good question. Because it's a significant amount of the structure is already built. So feasibly, they would have the option of opening it for the 2021 season. Uh, but with construction already nearing completion, it's... It seems like it's a conscious choice to push this new attraction another year. And what I'm wondering, is this the first of other attractions, be it by Six Flags or whomever, to be delayed further? Are the management, strategic management minds at these companies thinking that they are not going to need an attraction to drive attendance for 2021 because of maybe capacity restrictions or whatever else, and that they're going to hold it for 2022. Hmm. I think that's a way to look at it. And what's interesting, like you said, you wonder, is it Six Flags? Is it going to be others? Um, because I could play devil's advocate and say, oh, here's all these other things opening 2021. Um, but I also wonder about a staffing issue maybe in this case also perhaps the fact that the park is open year round maybe that's brought on more expense than they would have anticipated in a less than normal year um i i, I don't know if we can rule out but and tell me if you agree i think we can rule out that this is a systems issue or something like that or a ride issue to be able to say oh for sure it's not going to be open in all of 2021 and they can say oh it's not going to be open until probably summer of 2022, so you're talking Memorial Day weekend, if not later than that. Yeah, this isn't a prototype. There's at least one of them built, like we mentioned, at Wallaby, Belgium. Uh, I think there's probably another out there, if I do remember correctly. So, Which I don't think it, the one at Wallaby had any issue with timeline. So I think it is a conscious choice to push the opening of this attraction to 2022. I don't think it's out of their hands. I think they're choosing to do it. Uh, now it's just picking apart and saying why that is. That's the question. 
I wonder too if there's also a something else behind it, a marketing issue too. Of there's going to be a lot of news in 2021. There's going to be a lot of people that are choosing to open be, in 2021 because 2020 just didn't happen. Maybe some more solid choices, and so maybe that too is is fueling. Well, there's 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 other things to focus on. So let's just get it out in 2022 when we have more of a an openness to it, and uh, we can push it a little bit more to the crowd. Um, because I also wonder if if really a ride like this um, opening in in 2021 would would be feasible. I know that there's still going to be masks around probably by the time this ride opens. People will be required to mask still most likely. And with a ride that gets you this soaked, maybe that's another issue as well. That is another thing to consider. So there's a lot of things at play here. But we've had water rides open this year too, so. We have. Yeah. Hard to say. It's hard to say, but in the coming months we may know more as we approach the 2021 season for Six Flags over Texas, and maybe this is a trend for Six Flags attractions. Maybe it's a trend for the industry. Uh, that we do not know yet. Well, I may be visiting that park next month, so I will give you an update when I do. Okay. Our man on the scene. I like it. <laughs> You'll be holding a microphone, holding it out to people, trying to get an answer. <laughs> yeah, I might have to. I might have to. <laughs> okay. I like well, the sound of that. What else is going on, Chris? Well, DJ, that was something new that's being pushed to later, but now we have a little bit of information about another new thing that we don't know a lot about yet. This is Legoland Florida. They have released through various means that there's going to be an expansion in the coming years in the form of four and a half acres being taken out of their parking lot to make a whole new section of Legoland, Florida. Um, mm. And I, I think that we were first tipped off that this was going to happen because they had to file uh, some form of plans for permits uh, to be able to make these changes. And we saw a blueprint, I believe, uh, a very vague blueprint um, that suggests maybe more than five rides, a large building for what? We do not know. Mm. Like with many things in this part, in this uh, news story, this goings on for us. Uh, but it will be connected to the Lego Movie World section of the park, uh, which just opened in 2019, I believe. And four and a half acres, uh, what can you fit in four and a half acres? Because I don't know what to compare that to. Well, it's not terribly large, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to theme park lands. Right, but right. if you get maybe two or three spinners, a kiddie coaster, and a large building... Uh, that would fill up that land. Um, and this, I guess, is this is taking land away from their parking lot. So it's, uh, they can't take all their parking lot because then they'd be in a pickle, to mention a pickle for the second time in this episode. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, Screamscape, they seem to think that this could be for Lego Mythica, which is a new sub-property of Lego, uh, that's going to be opening a section in Legoland Windsor in the United Kingdom next year. Um, again, that's uh, speculation. We will see. Maybe they'll get a we'll get an announcement. I would say that this opening of this expansion would probably be 22 or 23 at the earliest. But what I'm thinking is they got a big building in those plans. They don't say what it's for yet. 
and I haven't taken a really hard look to see if it's an attraction building or something else, but you think about Lego lands uh, around the world. There's another Legoland park that's going to be opening next year in New York. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. And their big attraction is going to be the Lego Factory Tour, which is going to be a interactive dark ride with uh, oceaneering ride vehicles. So it's going to be articulating a little bit, popping, bumping around. Um, and at one point, you even become Lego figures. You're you're automatically your likeness is automatically generated onto the screen and you're a lego <laughs> oh wow <laughs> um, it was something <laughs> that cool. they had debuted the technology at in the iapa expo uh, that is the trade show for the industry annually in orlando florida they demonstrated this technology of making people legos and that's going to be a major element to the lego factory tour when it opens uh, in new york next year so I'm wondering, wow. I'm saying maybe they'll get a Lego factory tour in Florida. It's, I, think, I think it's a possibility. You know, I've met some individuals from Legoland parks, and one person I met, this gentleman had cufflinks on his shirt, and his cufflinks were Legos, and I always thought that was the coolest thing. I love that everything is Lego around there, and of course, that's why it's Legoland. Yet to go to one, um, would love to visit, and maybe this is another visit, another reason, I should say, to visit the Florida park, uh, maybe when this new edition is open, whatever it is. Yeah, well, as as they say at Legoland, everything is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I've got an additional piece of Florida news. Um, We didn't have this on our outline, but it just... It just came to me when you started talking about Legoland Florida. Do you mind if we we talk about that for just a second? Sure. I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm ready. Well, we've known a little bit about this, so it's it's not huge news necessarily. So when I heard this, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Um, That's the indefinite pause to Universal Epic Universe. Have you seen anything about this? Unfortunately, yes. We know that the... CEO of NBC Universal uh, was on an interview, um, basically had said that the whole project is on indefinite pause. For those that don't know, Universal Orlando, you have three main properties. You have Studios, Islands of Adventure, and you also have Volcano Bay, a water park. And so of those three, there is a new location coming, I believe in a few years from now. Um, We've seen concepts of what this would be, more of a open park if that makes sense i imagine it's the equivalent of california adventure you would know more chris because you've been to that park but it seems to be comparable to that Um, but this is where we thought we would see like super nintendo world um, but over in orlando there was even some rumors of fantastic beasts coming there uh, from the harry potter universe uh, to expand into into the, the potter universe that we have now um but that is on an indefinite pause because there's really no reason to be building something like this when millions, if not billions of dollars of capital needs to be put somewhere else in order to uh, increase demand like it was before all of this 2020 happened. Um, and, and so that is unfortunately on an indefinite pause. They have said that it will be built eventually. They have said that uh, they they will invest the time and money into it, but, you know, Chris, right now is just not the time. It wouldn't be the responsible thing to do. Right, 
when it was first announced, I believe it was August of 2019, uh, we were thinking 2023 or 2024. Who knows mm-hmm, now? Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. You're definitely right. I've so- heard some things here and there about what people think will be in Epic Universe, and it sounds like an amazing park when it, we can get to it. It sounds like it's going to be a game changer for the industry in how they do things and what's going to be there and the offerings. It's going to be something special, but we're going to have to wait. I remember my last trip to Orlando, which would have been uh, uh, last November, I believe, in 2019. I remember being close to that site and being with a friend who lives there, and he told me, um, we, we, we watched this as well, almost every five to ten minutes on the dot, you would see another truck entering with dirt or leaving with an empty bed to drop off dirt, an empty trailer. Uh, so plenty of work was happening at that site, that's for sure. Your friend lives at the Epic Universe construction site? <laughs> uh, drives next to it, is very close to it. <laughs> Almost <Okay>. every day. <laughs> Color me impressed. <laughs> so this next thing that I have is from an article by the OC Register. Hmm. Uh, DJ, they were speculating on what is going to be in the Hyperion Theater next, and that is the hmm. large 2,000-plus seat theater at Disney California Adventure we don't know the future of it. We don't, and you, you talked about this in a few episodes. I believe one of our, might be the first or second episode about the Hyperion. Yeah. And in this huge theater, for a long time, more than a decade, they had had the Aladdin show, which was incredibly popular. Um, and then since 2016, I believe, they had had a Frozen show, which was an hour-long retelling. It was a sort of a Cliff Notes version. It was very fast-paced. But it, ha- it hit all the songs, and it, it gave kids something to sing along with. But now that's closed. That has already been announced that that will not be returning to the Disneyland Resort. So now that leaves us wondering what is going to be taking the place in this huge theater at Disney California Adventure, a park that already does not have a large number of attractions and rides. Right. This right. is essentially an e-ticket for the park because it could handle a whole lot of people, three shows a day, and now it's just not there anymore. And from what you described, I'm kind of jealous that I've never experienced this. And anytime you talk about California's Adventure or Disney World, or Disneyland, I should say, I just want to go. And you would think with bringing in something new, it's always going to be state-of-the-art as well. If not state-of-the-art, top-notch. It always has to be better. I guess there are some exceptions of that not happening, but you know it's going to be good, whatever it is. We have high hopes about whatever comes next to the Hyperion Theater is going to be good. I mean, you look at the past two productions that were in the theater. They were both long-running, incredibly popular developmental labs that the properties were poked and changed with as they made their way to Broadway. Uh, Like, for example, the Frozen show changed at several times as they tested various different elements, sometimes costume changes. For example, with, uh, with, with Elsa's dress change, where it goes from the first dress she has to the second, uh-huh. uh, on stage, is isn't a spoiler because you can't see it anymore. Frozen is closed, unfortunately, <laughs> both at the Hyperion and on Broadway. It's uh, like one second, boom, 
her dress changes into the ice dress. I imagine that was a big thing to figure out that technology and make it reliable enough to do it eight shows a week on Broadway at such at the highest level. Uh, so there were little things. If you go back on YouTube and you look at the Frozen at the Hyperion, mm -hmm. their earlier shows started out with the ice sequence of the ice cutters singing their song. But in in the version that eventually froze, and pardon the pun, but the, the show itself <laughs> froze so that it was, it was always the same, around 2017, I think, they stopped messing with it because it already opened on Broadway so they didn't need to test anything out. Um, it definitely started out differently and that was just one of the changes but they did use it like with aladdin as a developmental lab of a theater testing things in front of the audience seeing what's going to get laughs maybe working out the olaf puppet mm -hmm. these are things that were used in this production so then we look and say what's next what is going to be in this huge theater uh the oc register thinks Maybe it's going to be Finding Nemo the Musical, which was already a production at Walt Disney World and using lots of puppets. Boo. Maybe? Have you seen that show? No, I've seen previews of it. I guess I'd be fine with it. It's just, I don't know, I'd, I'd like to see something that hadn't been done before. I was thinking more original. Maybe we hadn't seen an on-screen adapt or an, an on-stage adaptation of something. And I, I know about Nemo. I personally know almost nothing about Finding Nemo the Musical because back in the day when Walt Disney World had shows, I was hoping to see that show sometime, so I didn't want to spoil it for myself. Now that show has gone the way of the dodo, yeah. <laughs> so maybe I'll eventually watch it on YouTube. The OC Register, they also thought that they don't think properties that are already established having been transport well having been ported to theater um, either in the form of broadway productions through disney theatrical uh, or tours that are going on even though there aren't any tours going on right now and beyond things like mary poppins beauty and the beast little mermaid tarzan newsies uh, these are disney theatrical productions that mm -hmm. exist they are there they've already been translated to the stage but for some reason um the journalist of this article really doesn't see that happening. I might disagree because Disney California Adventure had a Lion King outdoor show in 2019. Uh, it was an adaptation of sort of the theatrical version, um, and it was very popular. It was right where the World of Color viewing area is. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a daytime show, so it was right in the sunlight. It was pretty hot, so that hurt its viewership a little bit. Sure. It wasn't the exact designs from Julie Tamer, the uh, director who created the production concept for Lion King on Broadway in the 90s. Uh, it was derivative of it, though. You could tell that... Some elements. A, some, yeah, some of the it was same a, elements. Mm -hmm. It was a, a version, a watered-down version of Lion King, the stage show. So they've already done it at the park. Lion King is already such a huge property. I think a version of the Lion King show in the Hyperion Theater would do incredible numbers. Th same thing with Newsies, because there was a, ah, yes. a long-running uh, show in Hollywoodland in Disney California Adventure that would make use of the streetcar that would go up and down the street. 
um, that was Newsies. They'd use the, the songs from Newsies, and it was these newsboys. Uh, personally, I despise that musical. I've really tried to love it. I think Jeremy Jordan is amazing, but I just can't listen to it. I think it's their attempts at accents for me. <laughs> so I can't really listen to it. But I think Newsies would also be incredibly popular if they were to have an adaptation of the full show in the Hyperion Theater. So those are two big properties that I think we might look at for the Hyperion Theater. Because if you think Lion King, yes, it's still on Broadway when Broadway does reopen. Yes, it still has a touring production that is still doing incredible numbers. But it's not like no one is getting fatigued from Lion King at this point. I mean, it already had the live-action slash animated adaptation of the movie in 2019. That did a billion dollars. People like Lion King. They love Hamlet with cats, that is. Yep, yep. Um, so I think Lion King is something that could be considered for the Hyperion Theater. And just to pull the curtain back a little bit to theater business talk, I sort of get where the, the journalist was coming from with being wary of using properties that are still being used on Broadway and in the touring productions because there is a very strict control on who gets the licensed productions for any property of the stage, even for something as old as Oklahoma or something new that's very popular with high schools like Legally Blonde for both tours, community productions, regional productions, all of these uh, productions have to be, uh, they have to secure the licensing to be able to perform these shows. And it can often be very difficult to secure the rights, especially if it's a Disney production. Even if it's a high school trying to do uh, a version of High School Musical, <laughs> it can be very expensive and very difficult because right. the licensors, Disney especially, is working to preserve the property and the prestige of the property by not allowing everyone to use it at once so the public gets burnt out. And that's why you see big tours of musical productions or, or things like that. Sometimes they crisscross around the country instead of just a, a methodical march from city to city. Because if they go to Tulsa and have a, a sitting production there for maybe two weeks, and then they go to L.A., and spend six months at the Pantages in um, downtown L.A., and then they come back to the Midwest, that is going to be a long enough time for the audience who's interested in seeing that production to have it fresh in their mind again, so, they're not, they're, so that they're not saying, eh, that was just in town, I'm not going to see it again. It's, it's different. And sometimes, often... Uh, very popular touring productions do return to the same cities, uh, but it's years, sometimes as many as four years before yes. productions return to the same city. So let me step down from my theater talk soapbox. I mean, we'd gone a few episodes <laughs> without me talking about theater on the stage, but it's interesting to think about. I'm surprised that you don't like the Newsies. I've not seen it either or heard it, but I've just always heard such great things. So that's where I'm still trying to, to figure out why you wouldn't like it. I think it's the accents for me, unfortunately. Yeah, that's fair. It's just, it's grating. Now, does, <laughs> does the OC 
do they have any other ideas of maybe what could be coming to the Hyperion besides some of their big guesses? You said Finding Nemo was one of the biggest mm-hmm. guesses. Well, they had also mentioned that the there is a Tangled stage show adapted for the stage. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've heard about that, actually. Yeah, it's pretty popular on the Disney Cruise Line, mm-hmm. uh, which, all things considered, is a particularly small audience uh, because it's whoever has a room in these ships. So it's it's definitely a show that a lot of people are, are not familiar with. I think they detail it on the Imagineers doc- documentary. Oh, well, DJ, I haven't watched it all the way yet. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a callback from the first episode. That's wow. Right. I haven't watched it all the way yet. Here but you are, 75 days later. <laughs> yeah. And I will say about Tangled, uh, there's already a Tangled show at the Disneyland Resort. Oh, really? If you look in the... Oh, my gosh. In the Royal Theater. I almost forgot okay. the name of it. In the okay. Royal Theater in Fantasyland... Uh, they have a sort of vaudeville-esque retelling of Tangled and Beauty and the Beast. It's a 30-minute show. Um, it uses the same actors to portray many different roles that retell the story of both Tangled and Beauty and the Beast at different showtimes, not together. That would be different. <laughs> um, sure. Where the princess comes out, and it's the princess just telling her story uh, with these performers who are playing many different roles. It's a lot of comedy, uh, but they do include a lot of the existing songs from both Tangled and Beauty and the Beast. So I think that might complicate things. I don't think that Disney would let the big, if they really did want to make Tangled work at the Hyperion, I don't think that they would feel bad about sacrificing the Tangled show at Disneyland across the street. Uh, But another thing that the OC Register was thinking about is for Aladdin, back when it was still at the Hyperion Theater, at one point they had already announced its replacement. It was ultimately replaced by Frozen, but they had previously announced that it was going to be replaced by a musical for a Pixar property, the first Pixar property that was a, a feature film, and that's Toy Story. Hmm. I don't know how that would work to yeah. put that on the stage. <laughs> to make conv- convincing characters, I feel like, that aren't creepy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when we got Toy Story 4, there was a walk-around character for Little Bo Peep. And it was a skin costume where it was like the skin of a, a person, but Ew. wearing Bo Peep's head. It was, it didn't work. It was off-putting. People were scared. Yikes. <laughs> But that, so um, the register at least thinks that that's potentially an option, um, as as, as well as many other Pixar properties that might be ripe for a musical adaptation. They mentioned a little bit about Hamilton, maybe. For that, I'm going to give a resounding no. There's no way that that would happen. (laughs) Because despite the movie release of Hamilton, there is still so much prestige that they need to be taking advantage of. Um, in the form of ticket sales when Broadway reopens again and um, and the many touring productions, the London production and whatever else opens up um, for Hamilton. There's still so much meat on the bone for that property. They're not just going to give a watered-down version of it to play 
three shows a day at the Hyperion Theater. There's no way that that happens, DJ. So I'm going to cut out that noise right now. <laughs> There's no way, unfortunately, that that's going to happen. Well, I do love Hamilton, but you're right. We just had an onstage adaptation, really just a recording of a few few performances to Disney+. Plus. So I understand. And they'd really have to do the full show. You you cannot you cannot condense that. So, right. I'm I I will I will forgive them. It's fine. So now let's get into a brief history of the launch coaster. Uh, this is uh, resulting from the question that Maggie had asked the show. Uh, they wanted to learn more about the launch coaster. Hey. Your wish has been granted. DJ, why don't you start us off? Yeah, it's my favorite coaster type. If you, I mean, consider the few types when you talk about launch, you either launch, chain lift, uh, cable lift, booster wheels, uh, powered is usually how you could classify them, I would say. And it all has to do with the main the main way the coaster gets up to speed. So uh, most coasters, you hear clickety-clack going up the chain lift. Um, some might go a little bit faster with the uh, somewhat newer invention of a cable lift. Um, you see those on some rides and some smaller rides, family rides. You may see what I was called the I called the booster, the booster lift. These are just rubber wheels that that do the same thing a chain lift would do. Uh, but there's something that all three of those methods have in common with. Maybe not cable as much, but it's the rate of speed at which they uh, ascend to the top of a hill. Let's say uh, what makes launch coasters unique uh, for the most part is a sudden increase of speed. Uh, the launch, as you would say, and it happens usually at ground level or a flat level, you could say. Uh, it's followed by the entire course of the ride after the launch. So instead of climbing to a height and then going down a drop to get your fastest speed on the ride, most of the time on a launch coaster, you experience the speed straight out of the gate and some sort of uh, some sort of launch. And they have different ways of really. Uh, increasing the adrenaline, increasing some nervousness as you don't quite know when it's going to launch. Some rides have a stoplight uh, sort of structure, maybe like a, a drag tree, different lights, you know, yellow, 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 green means go, right? Uh, but it all started really in the 70s. And um, this is with a company, Schwarzkopf, a, a German company named after Anton Schwarzkopf. Uh, you would see some of the first adaptations of a launch coaster with his flywheel system. You have to remember that a few decades before this, uh, we we're starting to see the first ever tubular steel track rides. Uh, we were seeing the inversion with the corkscrew and a loop being brought to those. And, and really, this was the next big thing to uh, kind of the modern era of coasters. And so we had with Schwarzkopf, the shuttle loop coaster. Now, I have personally not been on a shuttle loop. Have you been, Chris? Oh, yes, at Knott's Berry Farm, Montezuma's Revenge. These rides are extremely simple um, as far as the layout is concerned. Essentially, you have a station where you load the ride. You have a launch track ahead of you, uh, a massive loop, a very, very tall loop, and then a spike at the end of that, so a track going into the air. And then you repeat the course. You go backwards through the loop through the station, fly through it, and most of the time there's a spike behind you, uh, so you kind of valley up behind that, and then you run back into the station, hit some brakes, and the ride is over. Um, you, have mm -hmm. to, you have to know, though, as I've said before and kind of alluded to this, imagine this in 1977. You've not seen anything like this. No chain lift, nothing. Boom. 
uh, you're just off and the ride begins. Uh, and something we touched on in our last episode, what's so important about launches is how quickly you gain speed. It's not the top speed itself necessarily, but how quickly that rate of speed is experienced. And so on a shuttle loop, uh, not the most intense launch experience, um, but again, this is what they had. So that was in 1977 that we first saw these Schwarzkopf shuttle loop roller coasters, but they weren't the only people that were offering this new rapid propulsion for a roller coaster. Our old friends Aero, Aero Development that is, they also offered that same year, they offered their version of a shuttle loop with a launch. And DJ, I don't know about you, but that seems a little fishy to me. It seems like somebody was maybe copying off of someone else's notes if both of these firms, one of them in Germany, one of them <laughs> in California, they both opened a shuttle loop roller coaster model in the same year. I think someone was copying somebody else. <laughs> Could have been. It's hard to think that something like that was coincidental. Right. And to be fair, the Aero shuttle loop coaster is slightly different. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the Aero Shuttle Loop, there are just a few of them left in the world, unfortunately. But you start out, you climb up to the station. It's pretty high elevated off of the ground. and Yeah, you, you, you physically climb up, not the ride. Yeah. But you climb up a set of stairs on this scaffolding station structure. Yeah, the coaster doesn't do the work. You do the work. <laughs> <laughs> so you load in the coaster. You're up in the air. That's how you start. Um, you are flat. The coaster train itself is flat when you load, but then it launches, you go down a drop, you go through the loop, and then you go up another hill until you're just about as high as when you started out. Again, you're on a flat station-like area. You stop, the mechanical stuff goes click, 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 something like that. But then you launch backwards and you go down the hill, you go through the loop, you go up the hill, and then you go back to the station. And that was a ride. It's very um, reminiscent of the, and dear listener, you may want to Google this, the switchback railways you would see uh, at the turn of the century. However, this is sort of a, although it's the 70s, a modern equivalent of that. Yeah. And we say modern in meaning that it was a steel coaster. Right, uh, right. Even though things have expanded for launch coasters and launch technology, they've expanded quite a bit since then. Uh, in the 90s, we got magnetic launches. That meant for faster accelerations, faster top speeds. Uh, the first launch coasters by magnetic means, I believe, were the Flight of Fear coasters in 1996 at the Paramount Parks of Kings Island in King's Dominion. Or, DJ, was it the French Space Mountain in 1995? If only I had watched the Imagineering story, I would probably know the answer to this. But one I, of those I don't three think coasters... I could be, I could be wrong, so everyone please flame me if I'm wrong. I, I, I want to say the, the one in France is not magnetic. I think it's a counterweight I thought it had winch. A, a, I thought it had a magnetic lift. I, I really don't remember. That ride was so obscure, I, I didn't even know about it until I was watching that documentary, and they said, oh, we have this ride, and I was kind of like, oh, well, that's interesting. Hmm. Well, one of those three coasters was the first launch coaster by magnetic means. And those flight oh, of I have it coasters... here. I have it here. I have oh. the answer. Okay. Electric winch launch. 
and booster wheel lift hill. It's not magnetic. It is not magnetic. According to the one and only roller coaster database, rcdb.com. Okay. Well, there's your answer, folks. My name is Chris, his name is DJ, and this has been another Corkscrew Convo. Thanks for listening. No, but it's a good thing It's a good thing to talk about and bring up because uh, also around a little bit later, you had a similar ride built at Disney World down in Orlando, and this is uh, what most people who may not have been to many parks think of a launching roller coaster. That's Rock and Roller Coaster, which, which also uses, uses a cable electric winch mechanism, right? It is? I thought it was magnetic. I don't believe so. RCDB it for me, please. Yep, we're going to look right now. I'm almost certain it's some sort of winch. Let's see. Prove me wrong again. I don't I don't mean to at all. I don't mean to at no, all. No, no, it needs to be done, please. <laughs> ah. Chris, you're right. LSM launch. That's a type of magnetic launch. Zero miles per hour to 57 miles per hour in 2.8 seconds. I am vindicated. Yay. <laughs> you are vindicated. Okay. But know that Vacoma did this winch technology before they got into the magnet business. But not with the rock and roller coaster. Not with the rock and roller coaster. <laughs> okay. So magnets in the 90s, that was how we got started on this tangent. And when it comes to magnetic launches, there's two different versions generally. Linear induction motors versus linear synchronous motors. Uh, we could tell you what the difference is, but it wouldn't quite be a satisfying answer because we would just be saying words and not knowing the meaning of it. <laughs> it would just be what we found on Google, <laughs> something that you could also Google. Yeah, so um, when we get an engineering guest, they'll explain it to us, but in the meantime, magnets are magnets. I, I, I would risk saying that I think LSM is more economical. Could be totally wrong. Well, with linear synchronous motors, you... I mean, I, I already said I wasn't going to explain Here it because I don't quite understand it. Here we go. <laughs> oh, so I'm not. there. Well, All you have to do, search LIM versus LSM on Google. It goes right to a Reddit. You'll get your entire answer there until we get an engineer on the podcast. Okay. Well, in 2002, we also got another method of launching roller coasters, and that was hydraulics. Hydraulic launches, that is. Uh, with the motor that's pumping hydraulic fluid this way and that, that's building up the energy. And then there's a cable that's connected to a catch car underneath the train that pulls it along the launch section. And DJ, the tallest coasters in the world, they use this method. Uh, you are correct, although... Um, you have seen um, a magnet version of these two coasters you're talking about opened in Italy. Um, or is it Italy? No, it's in Spain, I believe. Spain. Spain. Yeah. But these hydraulic launches, you're right, uh, taking us to new heights, the only strata coasters in the world that's 400 feet and above use these hydraulic launches. Um, and they're quite loud, too, I will say. They use cables, um, super, super loud, um, very intimidating launches as well. Quite a ride experience if you get a chance to ride Top Fill Dragster or King Ka or Formula Rosa, something I haven't been to yet, but it's the fastest coaster in the world and it uses a hydraulic launch to do it. But uh, we also have different launch technology like the Friction Wheel Launch. A great example of this is the Incredible Hulk Coaster at Universal Studios Islands of Adventure. 
Yeah, it tends to lack that acceleration factor that the other launches do. Um, maybe more economical choice for what it does. Uh, very interesting, though. You go up, you launch at almost a 45-degree angle, so it's an interesting position to be in. feels like you're almost in maybe a rocket ship. There are wheels on both sides of the fins that are underneath the train, and those wheels push the train forward really fast, and that's how you launch. <laughs> I used to think it's... in my roller coaster tycoon days that that was the only way that coasters launched, and then I found out that's hardly how any of them launch. <laughs> it's not necessarily groundbreaking technology, uh, but it's a really cool launch. Um, a lot of moving pieces, a lot of tires that move and need to be replaced. So, I mean, you think about something like magnets, there's not a lot of moving pieces for those compared to something like a friction wheel launch. Uh, but we also have another launch method which debuted in 2001, and this was a pneumatic launch using pressurized air. These are the fastest accelerations ever. There's only a few of them in the world. The first was hypersonic XLC at King's Dominion. Back then it was Paramount's King's Dominion. And it was using this pressurized air to essentially do what the hydraulic launch technology does, where it, it builds up energy to pull the coaster by way of a cable and a catch car along the launch section. Um, so it was I have powder keg at Silver Dollar City, a great example of this. There's also Max Force at Six Flags Great America. Incredibly intense launches. I believe Max go... Force is now the fastest acceleration in the world. I think it beat the coaster in Japan, Dodo Dampa. Wouldn't surprise me. It's definitely... It's definitely North America, for sure. Yeah, it's a very intense launch method. Even something like Powder Keg, which is not necessarily known for its high thrills. I mean, it's it's a very forceful roller coaster, but it's a sort of a family coaster in in some ways, at least. Yeah, and talk uh, about a, a launch very... for your first coaster experience. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a, a very intense launch. And these methods that we've launched, that we've, <laughs> that we've launched, these methods that we've covered for launching, it's not all of them. It's not an exhaustive list of launch methods. But the big ones are covered in what we've already said. Yes, and, and one more thing to add, if you're trying to visualize what this pneumatic launch is, imagine a super soaker when you were younger, or maybe how old you are now. I'm not going to judge you. And imagine taking that super soaker and pumping it full of air like you used to do and not putting any water into it and pulling the trigger. That's essentially a pneumatic launch. Well, nowadays with launch coasters, we're typically seeing a lot of magnetic launches being opened. Yeah, almost always um, now. Yeah, because again, it's less moving pieces, less maintenance costs feasibly from then. A lot of what we're seeing now is impulse launches, or what some will call swing launches, that make, you, that make use of the shorter launch track segments but then you're passing back and forth over the launch segment multiple times to reach the top speeds of the coaster. It's something like the Skyrocket 2 model by Premier, where you launch forward, then you launch backwards, then you launch forwards again before you reach your top speed and before you go up 153 feet up in the air. Something like Wicked Twister, which I think you get four launches until you get to your top speed. Yeah, and so this is something that's been around for about 20 years now, this process of an impulse launch, but we're seeing it taken in new 
in new means, like something like Pantheon by Intamin, which was going to open this year, now it's going to open next year. It uses this um, impulse launches where it goes forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards until it goes all the way up to crest its lift hill. And it also uses a rapid track switch like with Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure. Pantheon being at Bush Gardens Williamsburg and Hagride, as it's affectionately called, down in Universal <laughs> Islands of yeah. Adventure. Uh, we've also, in the last few years, we've seen the first launched roller coaster that has spinning cars, or at least the second launch coaster that has spinning cars, the first in North America. Yes, the first one, uh, I believe it's called Gaikon over in Japan. Uh, it's basically a sort of a space ride. It's a one small vehicle that takes you uh, upside down, has a small magnetic launch. Uh, but then Time Traveler was really the the first major extreme coaster you could say to do this and also uh, a ride by mock rides mock was also revolutionary in in bringing these rides that you would see to do these speed up launches maybe you would experience a launch later on in the course where you're already going a decent speed and it gets, serves as some sort of uh, booster you could say throughout the ride to get to the end or uh, increase the speed of the ride so I think if we're looking at trends when it comes to launch coasters in the industry, the launch coaster has been around for more than 40 years now. It's just about 43 years. What they're doing now to make the experience fresh is by they're throwing in these variations. We have inverted coasters that launch, wing coasters that launch now, where you're on the sides of the track, time traveler where you're spinning during the launch, they're making it fresh by putting a launch on everything, it feels like, these days. It really does feel like that. And you have to remember, too, I mean, there's parks that have been putting in coasters for years. Uh, now this might be the only way to really put a park in with uh, less land available, um, trying to put it into tighter spots. I think Icebreaker at SeaWorld that's going to open in Orlando is a great mm -hmm. example of that as well. Yeah, that's going to be another launch coaster that uses a swing launch or an impulse launch to achieve its top speed. Definitely a way to, I almost don't want to say economical, because I feel like it probably has more issues than a traditional chain lift, even a cable lift. But um, if someone comes to you and says, we can build it cheaper and, and we can put a lot of people in it, you see things with, like you said, track switches. I can load one side and then bring a train out, move the track over, launch it and have it, go on its way while loading another train or even unloading one at the same time definitely allows for more train operation too so something to think about so maggie that was a great question uh it was Oof. it was really fun to put together that information a lot of it i knew already but i need a prize i think <laughs> for, for for doing all of that <laughs> for going into all of that you definitely deserve I, a prize for the back research on that my prize is the joy that i get from recording this podcast and talking with you dj Oh, I appreciate that. Well, that was the last bit of goings-on that we had for this podcast. I'd say it's time to hit the brakes, but we're not quite done yet. No, we're not. Remember, you can send your questions over to us, Corkscrew Combos, at Corkscrew Combos, I should say, both on Twitter and Instagram. We also have an email, corkscrewconvos at, you guessed it, gmail.com. Send your questions over to us. 
It could be about anything. Launch coasters, favorite meal in a park, uh, even business questions related to uh, roller coasters or theme parks, that whole industry. We'll do our best to answer it. If we don't know, we'll tell you we don't know, but we'll probably still try and answer it. I think I've said this on a previous episode. I'll just give you an answer. I'm going to make something up. (laughs) We'll definitely be honest with you. We'll say, "Uh, I don't know, but here's what I would imagine. Yeah, so that's how you can get a hold of us on the socials and on the email. You can send us questions. You can just talk to us if you want. We'd be happy to start a corkscrew conversation with you. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, 11 episodes in. I heard it coming before you said it. I was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So DJ's got a Twitch uh, if he ever plays it again. It's DJ for (laughs) Fire. DJ F O U R F I R E plays Camp Planet Coaster, other stuff too. Maybe The Sims. Do you play The Sims? No, I don't play The Sims. I I tend to play like I might play a scary game here and then. I don't really play popular games. So if you're wanting the Call of Duty and the Fortnite, those sorts of things, not not the channel for you. But come on by subscribe or not subscribe it's follow on twitch i don't want you to pay money i think you have to pay to subscribe to somebody just follow me you'll get a notification there if and when i go live um but also if you have been listening to us dear listener this long congratulations i think it's safe to say you should go ahead and subscribe and that is free yeah that's not going to cost you anything that's just going to put the show in front of your eyes when we release it and that's so far that's on a weekly basis knock on wood mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's been pretty much every eight days that we've had a new episode uh we're rolling right now i know things might happen in life that may prevent regular releases but from what we got going right now it's pretty much a weekly thing so if you subscribe you're going to give the, you're going to get these episodes as soon as we release them and that's good for everyone i was just going to say you know on youtube I think I watch YouTube more than anything else, any TV app or streaming app or cable or anything. And I love that I can subscribe to who I like. I don't have to necessarily even watch their videos when it comes out, but I have a dedicated channel where I can go through everything I've subscribed to and look from there. Things that I know I'm going to like from creators that I like, I can see exactly what I want to see. And like Chris said, I don't have to watch it right when it comes out, um, but having it all there together, I don't have to search for it is really a convenience. That's right. And as we said at the top of the show, if you do want to help us out, you can give us a five-star review on Apple if you feel so inclined. Uh, we will read it out. We'll give you a shout-out. Yes. Within reason. If you put something crazy on the review, we might not read it. but Like insulting Chris's barbecue. I will not read that. Oh, my goodness. I don't even want to entertain the idea, DJ. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't do that. But give us a review. We would appreciate it. Even if you just put five stars, it's fine. If you want to write something that's even better, we really would appreciate it. Again, if you've made it this far, consider doing that. It really would help us. We really appreciate it. It's free. It's easy. You can do it really quickly. And uh, who knows? Like we said before, there may be a giveaway of Bruin. I I look forward to hearing the details about that, DJ. Uh, but yeah, that giveaway, that'd be a very interesting idea. Again, I uh, l- moving into a house, I have realized I've got a lot of junk. <laughs> well, that sounds like a plan. Until next time, my name is Chris. And I'm DJ. And this has been another Corkscrew Convo. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.